Hawkeye Self Storage in Danville has electricity hookups, 14-foot-tall doors, and 60-foot drive lanes, private bays, interior and exterior lighting with 24-7 access gated entry. They also feature indoor RV and boat storage with three locations, 1303 East County Road 200 South in Danville, 7410 West U.S. 36 in Danville, and 2238 West U.S. Highway 36 in Danville. More information can be found by calling their phone number at 31 31- 745-2700 or by going to their website hawkeyestorageunits.com This is Sights and Sounds with Alan Kiger. Alan is a Hendricks County native who talks with your favorite entertainers. Sights and Sounds is sponsored by Hawkeye Storage in Danville. And now your host Alan Kiger. This is Alan here in WYRZ, and I'm interviewing Richard Young of the Kentucky Headhunters today. How are you, Richard? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine, baby. Just uh, we're up here uh, in French Lick, Indiana, playing this beautiful casino. My goodness, I've never been here. It's a uh, what a great place. You never, you never been here before, no, sir. No. Are, you, what, are you staying in the hotel? Well, we're not staying. I mean, yeah, we what have mean, rooms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We stay on the bus. You know, um, we sleep. You can give us uh, rooms at the Taj Mahal. We'd sleep on our bus <laughs> because we sleep so so well. It's a you know you have your own little cubicle and get in there and you can adjust your air and and uh, you know if you want to listen to music you got headphones and got TV in the bunks and so really it's not anything that we have and it also. I, I think it kind of takes you back to being in, in your mom or something. You feel so secure in that little bunk. You just sleep so well or something. It's a strange thing. Well, I wondered when we walked in, you said Richard, or you said Fred Three. was asleep in the in the bunk. And I thought, well, why would you be asleep in the bunk when you've got a, a no. nice room to go to? But well, You know, you get in there and it's nighttime all the time, you know. And you, as you can hear, there's a little rumbling engine going from the little Kohler engine that keeps the lights going and stuff during the day when we show the big engine off so that kind of like rocks you to sleep so to speak okay well let's talk about a, a few songs today we got off your safari album we got deep southern blues again what deep, can you deep south blues deep south i don't know i don't know why i wrote down. that's Sorry. okay deep south blues again deep south blues again man you know what it's just a great rock and roll song i was up in the practice house and sat there and and i was really trying to write blackstone cherry a new song my son's band and so I, I wrote this song out, and I went to him with it, and I said, hey, let's take this and make it into something for y'all. And they didn't like the music to it, but they liked some of the words. So we, we, we robbed some of the words from Deep, Deep South Blues again and created the number one song, uh, Bad Luck and Hard Love, which was big, you know, number one in Europe and made that song so when we were doing on safari uh, of course our dad had, had been real sick he was 93 years old and a couple of weeks before we went to the studio we lost him so we were kind of like pushed to come up with some songs so I remember this deep south blues thing so I went back and rewrote more lyrics for the lyrics that we had taken away and used in bad luck and hard love so, and it was always still a song. I just wrote it from the same same point of view and that sort of thing. So I was lucky with that one to say. Made two songs out of one. That's a pretty good deal. Well, let's go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and listen to Deep South Blues again. Great. Ow! Let's, 
let's go on to another song. And I, I touched with you on this one when I did the uh, newspaper interview with you, uh, Crazy Jim, which I, I think right. is, I think everybody has a Crazy Jim in their town. Sure. I mean, well, when when I was the only public job I ever had when I got out of high school was while we were <clears throat> waiting for the younger boys, Anthony and Fred, to get out of high school so we could do a lot of touring. Uh, Greg worked at the record store an electronic store and I worked at the local music store and this fella his name was not Jim uh, we'll keep that covered up forever but he would come in the store and he always had a car and the trunk was full of rocks and he would come in and had a burlap bag and he would bring some of these rocks into the store on Saturdays and give them to people and tell them that you know you take this rock and keep it, and it'll make you it'll make you rich. And everybody laughed at him, you know, and, and said, well, that old man's crazy, them, them rocks ain't worth a penny, you know, and a nickel, as it says in the song. And uh, <clears throat> so, that, but it bothered me that people made sport of him and fun because I don't think, I don't think he really meant make you rich financially. I, I think that he meant sp spiritually. Is everybody's got to believe in something, and and so I, I I carried that idea from the time I was 18 years old until we did on safari, and I'd never been able to. I knew if I ever started down the wrong road trying to write it, it was a real story, and I had to I had to really be on my game to make it right. And one day I was just sitting up at the Brax house with a acoustic guitar, and our old farmhouse, you know, that we have, we've had since '68 to rehearse in. And all of a sudden, bang, it just poured out. Crazy Jim. But his real name was a Jim, as I right. said. But, you know, we leave that unnamed. And, uh, but I just, all my life, I felt I needed to write that song about a guy that maybe he wasn't talking about getting rich financially. He was trying to teach everybody that everybody needs to have some sort of spirituality in their life. Or maybe friendships. Friendships or, or whatever, you know. Health and and uh, <clears throat> I think it, it came out quite well. It took me 15 minutes it was done. So. That's amazing how you songwriters do that. Well, let's, let's go ahead and uh, listen to Crazy Jim. Sure. There was an old man not to hate. We're back. We just got done listening to Crazy Jim. I tell you, I, I first caught that off of a YouTube video that I, I thank God we live in a world where I can just watch any kind of video before you go to interview sure. somebody, and then I, that inspired me to go get the the CD. But the the last song on that uh, CD on Safari album was Governor's Cup, and I really liked the just complete instrumental. It, it brought me to a different thing. I mean, you're always listening to music, and you're always listening to words and what people have to say. And I think, I don't know what your take on that, how a musician's take is, but mine, I think everybody has their own idea of where you disappear to in your head when you're listening. Yeah, yeah, it's just like the song we wrote, Dumas Walker. The, initially, Mercury Records didn't want to put it on the album. And even down to the mastering session, uh, they took me in a back room and said, listen, we, we, we got to leave that song off there because it's too regional. Nobody else will get it. And I said, no, you don't understand. Everybody's got a Dumas Walkers. You know, I don't care if it's going around the Dairy Dip every Saturday night or going to the, you know, root beer stand, A&W root beer stand, going to the movies. Everybody's got something they like to do to hang with friends. You know, go down to the river and shoot 22s and drink beer 
whatever it is, that's their Dumas Walker. And that's why that song exploded because everybody missed that, hey, let's all go thing somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, speaking of... Uh, and what song are we talking about? I got oh, oh, well, we were talking about Governor's Cup. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Talk. I'm but, back. But while you're on that, I got a question. Did did Ski ever give you, like, royalties for, for selling their drink through the song? For Ski? No. <laughs> no, Coca-Cola owns it now. But, uh, you know, it was a, it would have been a grand opportunity. But, you know, these people are kind of like the headhunters in Greensburg, Kentucky. They wanted to stay family-owned, and I appreciate that. But they sure had an opportunity to go nationwide with it at that time. But uh, they just, I respect that, that they wanted to keep it local. And you know what, it paid off. You know, they were able to keep it in the family. So, uh, and that's kind of the way the headhunters think about everything, too. We, You know, we're very self-contained. A lot of people pitch us songs and, oh, this would be a good song for the headhunters. But if we don't get it, it's not a good song for us. It might be a number one song for somebody else <coughs> but if we can't if we can't get a grasp and get our arms around it and make it a headhunter song then it doesn't work that's why we pretty much uh, in the early years we uh, you know we, we did like Walk Softly which was actually written by Bill Monroe and Jake Landers and it was very bluegrassy and uh, you know Spirit in the Sky was Norman Greenbaum's song but we knew we could take those songs and meld them into something else, you know, and the, and the way that came about is in the 70s when we started playing rock bars, we would give the uh, bar our song list, <coughs> excuse me, and the, uh, the guy would say, well, man, I ain't ever heard any of these songs here, and they said, no, we wrote them, and he said, well, you can't come in here and play two hours and, and play all your own stuff, you got to play some covers, so we started taking cover songs and twisting them and making them into our own. Like Drive My Car by the Beatles was a big one we did. And it's still, we wouldn't mess the melody or any of that, but we would make the music take on a different uh, color and approach, you know? Well, I think with Spirit of the Sky, I think you guys did a great right, yeah. remake of that. Yeah, Norman Greenbaum was interviewed in uh, Rolling Stone, and he said, well, you know, it's been recorded a Zigging times, what's your favorite? And he said the Kentucky Headhunter. So I thought that made us feel good, <laughs> you know. Feel- let's talk about Governor's Cup. Yeah, let's go back to that. Okay, well, as I said earlier, uh, right before we went in the studio, we lost our father, and James Howard Young, who was a, a great, iconic school teacher in Southern Kentucky, as well as a big historian and, uh, you know, just interesting guy to talk to about anything, you know. He never met somebody they couldn't talk to whether it was you know somebody working in the tobacco patch or the president you know he's just one of those guys kind of like a cross between uh jimmy stewart and gene kelly if you could imagine that the interesting fella but um anyway uh, fred and i were you know dealing with that at the time and well all the boys were because you know our practice house was only like 200 yards from mom and dad's house so, you know, every night after we practice all of our life, Mom would have, you know, Mexican hamburgers and chocolate chip cookies or whatever for us, strawberries. And we'd go down there at midnight, Mom and Dad would still be up, you know, waiting for us to come to the house. And we all slept there, and it was just a great time. And uh, But Greg had been working on this thumb-picking thing. Greg's a, a great student of people like Mose Rager and Merle Travis and Chad Atkins who learned from them. And... Uh, 
Uh, most of that sound came out of the area around Muhlenberg County, Central City, and up there in the coal mines, you know, western coal mines, not the eastern ones of Kentucky. But uh, Greg had been toying with this. So we, I said, won't y'all just put down a track of that and let's see what happens. And then when they got it down, is I kept listening to it. And so if you look at the video of it, is Greg's playing all the stump picking stuff, and then I went back over and put like almost like a George Harrison uh, early Beatles melody over the top of it, which made for a very interesting That's deal. A great song. Great yeah, song. man. Yeah, it's a cool song. Thanks. And uh, but it was actually the the title Governor's Cup is the reason it was called that. Is uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, during the state fair, they have a championship three and five gated horse show. And our dad was very big, and uh, matter of fact, we still have the same bloodline of uh, gated horses we've had since the Civil War, and their family. Wow. And uh, we still have about 25 of them on the farm. And uh, our dad used to raise brood mares and would have colts, and he sold to all the, uh, you know, big shots in the horse business. You know, I can remember going to. Um, Going to a Tattersall sale where that daddy would sell some of his colts, and you know maybe somebody'd buy one from him for eighteen hundred dollars, and we'd see it sell for eighteen thousand a year later, you know. But um, the fella in—I'll uh, tell you who was a big gated horse guy—was uh, uh, the guy in Star uh, Star Trek, uh, Captain William, Kirk. William Shatner. Yeah, and I can remember being a little boy and sitting with him and my dad, and they'd be talking horses. And I had no idea he was going to be in a TV show. One time it came on, and I said, look, Daddy, there's Mr. Shatner there. And he said, oh, no, that's not him. And, you know, it was, because Daddy didn't even know he was an actor, because they, they didn't talk about things like that. They talked about horses. So, you know, and I would meet a lot of movie stars and stuff when I was a little kid. I didn't even know that they had other interests besides being in movies. That was just their job, you know. And you guys still have the, these, these style horses. Oh, yeah. no. I think that's the same style. I, I worked at a horse farm when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And a uh, guy by the name of Jimmy Lowry was a trainer. Uh-huh. I think he's over in Illinois, and I... I, I know that name. I think he trains those, and I think he might have trained William Shatner's. I'm not 100% Yeah, Jimmy sure. Lowry sounds familiar. Yeah, Too bad over. Daddy's not here to tell us, but I'll bet you... I think Jimmy Lowry's been down to the farm before. I wouldn't surprise me. I know Shatner's been down there, and a lot of other people, but anyway, so there's a... Daddy was on a team of people that devised a trophy for... Uh, that's the championship five-gated class, which was the biggie. And uh, it was like a big sterling silver uh, goblet-type thing, real big, nice thing with sterling silver and had all the inscription in of what it was, and it was called the Governor's Cup. One more song I want to right. talk to you about. It's something sure. that looked from, from the, what I found that all four of you had written um, called "Some Folks Like to Steal." Yeah. Uh, now, now let me let me let me just tell you about how the Headhunters write songs. A, a lot of the songs I, I may have come up with a melody and a lyric, but we share all of our songs. We write every song is shared 
that we write because it was that you know I learned it from the Beatles it was really the Beatles would probably still be around if Paul McCartney and John Lennon would have just shared some writing off some of those songs you know because you, you nobody sounded like Ringo okay he's a drummer but he's like Fred Fred sings the drums he doesn't play them he makes notes with them and Greg I would hate to think about writing a song without Greg Martin coming up with some unbelievable original hook guitar thing because otherwise it's just pieces of paper in my pocket and notes in my head so well, I like, I like yeah, your take that's on that the way all. we do it so I wanted to make sure that your audience realized that if you look on our albums you'll always see songs written by the Kentucky Head on us occasionally in the early days there were songs that uh, for an obvious reasons that were classified as a person writing you know like Rock and Roll Angel it shows that I wrote that and, uh, and that's cool but I, it really wasn't just me I couldn't have done that without the other guys really you know that's I, one I wrote thing the, you gotta fight about yeah well yeah bingo and, and you know a lot of people think that we're crazy doing that or I'm nuts because they don't write songs they write songs and they let other people figure out but think of all the great licks uh, that have been have been put together by some studio musician who just got paid studio time. A uh, good example, Jerry Kennedy, the producer. He's the guy going down on Pretty Woman. That was the song. He he got paid 150 bucks to create that. Wow. You know, I think so, how many other artists have recorded that over the yeah or any other song. Oh, wow. You know. So, just like the Wrecking Crew out in uh, California in the 60s and 70s, I mean, Lord of mercy, uh, Benny Kay, that girl, and, and Leon Russell, uh, Trini Campbell. Lopez, Jen, Glenn Campbell, uh, God, all those guys were, were like, uh, you know, B.J. Wilson, the drummer, all those guys, up in, uh, look, uh, look at the ones up in uh, Motown. What about those guys? Yep. It played it played on all those great uh, Retha hits and, and soul hits, but they were just studio musicians. There was a guy from Danville High School. He's 81, I think, now, or 82, graduated class 54, Bob Schneider, and he played the sax on all that Stevie Wonder superstition. Uh, he went to sax records. He was playing the sax on Otis Redding, oh, sitting on the dock at the bay, wow. Soul Man, you know, and he's still getting royalties from some of these things. Yeah, well, now, see, some of those guys are smart enough they get paid on them. He, he did the arrangements on all of them, yeah. but I don't think he ever got paid on the stack stuff. Right. I think that's still a... Look, uh, t tell, tell me a little bit about some folks like to steal. I just kind of picked that one out, you know, because I think that was... Right. Hey, every guy's probably had that deal where there's been a, another guy trying to hone in on your woman. Was that something that you had seen? I thought that was pretty cool. Happened, had happened to actually, you? Actually, probably, but that wasn't what gave me the title. <coughs> if people saw our early videos, they would recognize a guy who was basically helped raise us, raise me, uh, who took care of my grandmother's farms, the African-American gentleman, Jakey, we called him, James Cowell. And he lived with my grandmother from 1946 until, and then when she died, he moved, he lived with Cindy and I, my wife and I, because he was like a surrogate father to me, he second guy, because I followed him behind his heels. He taught me how to shoot guns, drive tractors, and all this stuff. And I listened to every word, I leaned on every word he said, just like my dad. If you can imagine what 
it was like with my grandmother and him. It was it was like a hillbilly version or a country version of driving Miss Daisy around. And my grandma always had a new Cadillac, and she would let Jakey drive her everywhere, and, and they'd go out in the hay fields in a new Cadillac or, or go feed cows out of the back of it with sacks of grain. It, you know, just, just, and it was a great life. You know, Jakey and I would... We'd hunt and we'd catch mud turtles and my grandma would cook them and it was, it was a boy's life, really fun. And really she raised Jakey with my father. He lost his parents so when daddy went to college, Jakey never left. He stayed with my grandmother and, and so I was raised. But uh, when Cindy and I moved out to the house, I had to have a lawnmower so I bought me a push mower, which I couldn't do that now. It's like three acre yard. but. So one night somebody got my lawnmower, and I said, "Jakey, where's my lawnmower?" He said, "I told you to put that lawnmower up, boy." I said, "Some folks like to steal," and then bang, it hit me. And so I wrote the song about a lawnmower, my lawnmower getting stolen, but it was from the point of view of some guy in the back seat wanting to take over your girlfriend. It's all the same. Thievery is not a good thing. No, it's not. <laughs> Richard, one more thing before I let you go here. Um, you're going to be playing in Marengo, Indiana, September 1st. Yes, sir. And I see you're going to be playing uh, September 26th in Auburn, Indiana. Uh, if you want to send out, you know, a message to all your fans here. Yeah, yeah, everybody. You know, Indiana has been a great state and supporter. Indiana and Illinois have been, of, of, you know, all the states we've been has great luck but indiana has always stuck with us and Illinois especially and uh and uh not to say that other states haven't but it seems like that we have to we have to get around and see more people in those states and so we're really excited about uh going to auburn but you know marango we've been there before and jerry hanger always brings us in and it's such a great time and i'm excited because i'm gonna have uh Jerry heard the band I'm producing and managing now, the Georgia Thunderbolts, and I'm going to have them with us. Warming up? Oh, yeah. And okay. you'll be hearing about them. They just I'm, get, I'm going to come a, see that show. I've never been to Marengo, Indiana, yeah, so I'm going to... They're getting a record deal, so uh, we're right. going to be doing doing big things with them. Helping. That's been kind of been my thing, is to help other children that have good bands and stuff. Well, thanks, Richard, for taking the time and doing the interview. I appreciate it, and look forward to seeing you both those dates. This is Levi Riggs, and you're listening to Alan on WYRZ. We'll be back with more of Alan's interview with the Kentucky Headhunters right after this. Hawkeye Self Storage in Danville has electricity hookups, 14-foot tall doors, and 60-foot drive lanes, private bays, interior and exterior lighting with 24-7 access gated entry. They also feature indoor RV and boat storage with three locations, 1303 East County Road 200 South in Danville, 7410 West U.S. 36 in Danville, and 2238 West U.S. Highway 36 in Danville. More information can be found by calling their phone number at 312 312- Seven seven four five two seven zero zero, or by going to their website, HawkeyeStorageUnits.com. Hi there, this is Richard Sturgeon with the Oak Ridge Boys, and you're listening to Alan on WYRC. 
This is Alan, and I'm sitting down here talking to Doug Phelps of the Kentucky Headhunters. How are you today, Doug? I'm good, Alan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good oh, one thing we want to I want to key on. Uh, I just got done talking to Richard, but I'll I'll talk to you now. A uh, question I forgot to ask him is: Okay, you guys are on your 30th anniversary tour. You know, 30 years on picking on Nashville. Yes. How has that been? And did you ever think 30 years ago that you would still I mean, once upon a time, people didn't think rock and roll or country bands. You know, if you had a 10-year lifespan, you was doing good. That's right. 30 years later, you guys are still selling out places, and, and people are loving your music. What can you tell me about that? Well, of course, it, it's unexpected. I mean, it really is. You know, the lifespan really, on, on average, doesn't last that long. So we've been very fortunate, uh, you know, to kind of make the impact we made at the right place at the right time with the right people. All those things kind of fell in place. And the main thing was that the... The fans out there gravitated towards it and accepted it, and um, I, you know the true blue fans, man, they keep hanging in there with us. So for it to be 30 years with the original four of us, we, the original four of us now that still do it, are the founding members of the Headhunters in March of '86. So 33 years for us doing the Headhunter thing, but uh, we, we signed our record deal in 1989 with Harold Shedd at Mercury Records. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about that, that signing. Um, we, we had a friend that, that was a, a big music fan who was in the banking business, Jonathan D.W. Lyle, who one of his hobbies was he loved music and he would give bands that he liked a little bit of money to go record an album, you know, go in and record some of your stuff and just never expect anything back from it. It was what he loved to do. So he saw us play one night and saw Greg and I play and Richard happened to be with us when we were doing the McDowell thing back before this. And uh, we told him about, about the headhunters we had together and he said, well, I really like, you know, I'd like to uh, help the boys out. He gave us the money. Long story short, we went in, in I think October of 88, recorded eight songs, called, called it Picking on Nashville. Ourselves, we did it ourselves, we played it ourselves, we produced it ourselves, it was all self-contained and made 500 copies of a cassette tape because cassette was, you know, that was it at that time. It was, that was king. It was, yeah. CDs were just about to come out and albums were on their way out at that point. But, uh, you know, we had the Chitlin show up in Mumfordville, Kentucky, the radio, live radio show we would do out once or twice a month. And we thought we could sell a few there and we'll, wherever we play, we'll take a few with us and play. But a friend a couple of friends in the music business. We didn't really know anybody at the labels at the time, but uh, I had a friend at uh, BMI, uh, the published, uh, BMI Royalty Company, you know, that I handed a tape to. Richard knew uh, Larry Shell, that was a publishing guy that was friends with Harold, okay? So, and we just kind of handed our tape out to some of these folks and friends. Word got out. We heard from the vice president of CBS Records, who loved the tape, and wanted wanted to see us, wanted to do a show us to do a showcase, and so he could bring some, I guess, from the people from New York now. So he said, "Well, okay, if we're going to do it, you know, we didn't really know if I mean we, that was really not the intention initially, but he said, well, okay, if we're going to do this, let's make sure we invite everybody, we you know, anybody from all the labels come out, and they did. Harold Shedd had just taken over Mercury, and we didn't we didn't know that we didn't invite anybody from Mercury Records." So through Larry Shell and another friend, Tom Long, who had worked with Richard and him in the past, they're the ones who grabbed Harold and said, you need to come see this band. We did our showcase down at Douglas Corner, 8th Avenue in Nashville. Uh, they put us on the same night Leroy Parnell was doing his showcase. So 
Everybody was I had had quite a few show up from different labels. They'd never seen us, no pictures, never seen us live. All they had was that pink tape. It was supposed to have been black and white. It came out pink and white, <laughs> so, we, so we called it a pink tape. And it had a picture of Merle Travis's headstock, a guitar headstock. That's what it was. And so I guess there were preconceived notions about maybe what we were going to look like and sound like. Well, we come out there with the long hair and the loud and doing what we do. And it, it, it scared everybody half to death. They, well, obviously we can't do nothing like with this in Nashville, you know. This isn't really, smart, you know, traditional country music, which they should have known that from, from the tape. But um, Harold Shedd, who had never seen us and didn't have a copy of the tape, something about what we did that night intrigued him enough. And he said, I, I wish, you know, after, after he stayed after the show, he said, well, I didn't, I didn't get a tape, but, you know. So we gave him a tape. He called us up the next day and said, Y'all did this yourself? He said, yeah. He said, well, I'm going to sign this band. He said, we may all be selling hamburgers next year, but I'm going to sign this band because I think there's something here, you know. And um, and he, sure enough, he, he stayed with us. We, we, we negotiated the deal by, by July of 89 when we signed the finally got the record deal negotiated. So, And that was the release that was 30 years ago. So this past Friday night, we played in, in Nashville at Basement East and uh, as a 30th anniversary celebration type thing. And Harold was there, Jim Zumwalt, Jim, Jim Zumwalt who was our um, lawyer that negotiated the deal with us, was there. Uh, Mike Bradley from the sound shop that engineered and mixed the album for us at that time was there as well. So we had a lot of the old guard come out and, and just get to celebrate 30 years of not only picking on, we called it picking on, 30 years of picking on Nashville and beyond because obviously we've done, You've done many, many albums since then. So that's that's kind of how the how that all kind of transpired, which Harold wasn't even supposed to be there, and that's, you know, that's how it works out sometimes. 30 years of success of picking on Nashville. All the places you've toured, all the people you've met, is there any unique experience, maybe somebody you met, somebody that was one of your heroes, whether it be a musician or a president or a place you've got to go that you had always dreamed about as a kid? Is there something that really stands out of that 30 years that, that's maybe not musically, right. but it's touched, it's, your, it's touched your life? Well, um, there have been... Uh, we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of that kind of thing go on, but one of the first things I remember um, realizing, oh my gosh, this is actually happening, we, uh, when Hank Jr. put us on tour with him um, in early 90, at Picking, Walks Off, he had, had already sold us about a half million records, Dumas was just coming out, and Hank grabbed us up and put us on tour with him, so we played all of 90 and a lot of 91 with him open, you know, open up for Hank. And which that was a unique experience in itself because we'd, I'd seen Hank before as just sitting out there, you know, as a, as a fan. <clears throat> and so getting to, you know, hang out with him and he was, he was really cool to us, man. He, he really helped us a lot. And, um, but yeah, in regards to that, I, I'm the only one not originally from Kentucky. I have family, you know, history in Kentucky, but uh, grew up in the Boo Hill of Missouri. Uh, close to the Mississippi River, down in the Delta area, northeast Arkansas, southeast Missouri. So we weren't too far from Memphis. And so any concerts I really wanted to go to, because the Boot Hills all small towns, you know, there really weren't, there wasn't a place to go see a show, really. So we'd have to drive down to Memphis to the Mid-South Coliseum to watch concerts. And so by the time we got 15, 16, 17, all my buddies and everything, we'd all gather up and go down and watch watch concerts each year. 
And I always thought, boy, you know, and you're sitting out there as a kid, you know, looking up there going, boy, wouldn't it be cool to get to play this one of these days? And sure enough, 1990, <clears throat> we pulled in the back area and walk out on the stage, and there we are. So we got, you know, that I remember uh, how how kind of overwhelming it was to, to realize that something that I had dreamed about sitting out on the other side out there in, in the audience was, was about to come true. And uh, I had a lot of my buddies from back home, you know, that used to go to the sh shows with me uh, there, you know, to get to experience that with me too. So that was really cool. Well, that, that was a great memory. Did, did you ever have that in your head that you knew one of these days that would happen, uh, you know, when you were drunk? <clears throat> never, never did I think, oh, for sure this is going to happen because music business is... If it's anything, it's uncertain. <laughs> you know. Now, uh, did I have the drive and the ambition to, you know, to, to pursue it? Yes, absolutely. Um, but being from a small town in, in in a little town called Cardwell, Missouri, down in the boot, very bottom left-hand corner of the boot, if you go three miles south or three miles west, you're in Arkansas. And um, you know, I grew up basically in the summers having to work on the farms because there wasn't anything else really around there to do and so there's it's hard to imagine from from that area for me it was hard to imagine that I would uh, ever you know ever have the opportunity to really do something uh, beyond just enjoying playing music um, from that area you know and so I was I was always good at sports played basketball and baseball in in uh, in school, and so I was in college. I was, I was going to be a coach. I was going to be a teacher and a coach, you know, because I, I figured I, that was realistic to me. I knew I could do that, and that I'd always be able to enjoy and play music because I'd, I'd been doing that all my life up to that point anyway. And um, all the Phelps family—it's like everybody plays and sings, and you know, it's just in the family. It's in the genes. And so I figured that would be, um, you know, that was kind of what I figured my reality would be. But I had a keyboard player friend of mine. We hooked up in high school. He lived over in Paragould, Arkansas. He ended up in Nashville at the 50 show in Opryland. I'm still in college. He ends up with Ronnie McDowell somehow or another, country music artist who had a lot of hits on his own. Oh, yeah. Craig calls me up in October of 81 and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. And Ronnie, I'm, he's looking for a bass player and singer. Are you interested? A 20-year-old kid. Yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> so I went over, auditioned, and the, the, the same day I auditioned, Greg Martin, our lead guitar player, Richard and Fred and all that, he probably told you a little bit about that, yeah. about their, their being close to record deals a couple times. Yeah. And, and then around 80 or so, they kind of all disbanded and started doing you know, other things, separate things. Greg knew the horn player that was leaving, and Ronnie wanted a second guitar player, so Greg auditioned the same day I did, and we both got the gig with Ronnie. So funny how the paths converge. And so when they got the itch to put something back together again, their other cousin, Anthony, that had been playing with them all those previous years, had just got married and had a baby on the way, and he, he didn't want to do it. He wasn't interested in doing it. So Greg said, well, I'll bring, you know, I'll bring Doug up. I'd already met Richard and Fred. So I'll bring Doug up, and you know, we'll get together and see what we think. So we, March of 86, we got and uh, met in Greg's basement and just talked and started jamming and playing. We went, okay, cool, this is, you know, we'll do this. And so that's, that's where we, we researched the name, came up with a headhunter name, which after Muddy Waters' old band was nicknamed that. And um, 
kind of just went as the headhunters initially, and then tie that into the years later, two or three years later, when we do the record and Harold Shed comes and sees us, they do a search on the name, and I, I think even though it had never been officially registered or copyrighted or whatever, it had been used. Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters 2, Roman numeral 2, remember that? Yeah. They were called that, but I don't think they ever registered. But because it had been used, that the label was like, no, I don't wanna, we don't wanna go there and end up being sued. So they, um, they ended up, we added Kentucky to it because that's where we're based out of. And the name became a part of the lore of, you know, of the, of the look and the name and the whole bit. So it's, it's kind of how that all came together, so. Hey folks, this is Richard Young with the Kentucky Headhunters Group. You're listening to Alan on WYRZ Radio. In fact, you're talking to Greg Martin of the Kentucky Headhunters. We're always talking, are we? <laughs> yes, we are. We're always talking. I've noticed something on your Facebook page, uh, Psalms 33.3, and also on your guitar picks, you have Psalms 33.3. Yes, I don't want to, you know, are, are you a Christian? Yes, sir. Are you sir. very religious? Well, I'm not religious. I, I'll have to, I'll, I'll clarify that. Okay. Uh, I am a Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. Um, in 1967, during the Summer of Love, I went to a little country church in Midcalf County, and uh, the preacher preached a great sermon, and I uh, went forward in 1967. I accepted the Lord. And by 1972, I was off running with everybody else, doing things that we all do in life, you know, and I got away from walking with the Lord for a lot of years. And um, actually, in 1994, after, it, it's crazy. It, it, it's, it's crazy, man. Um, you know, you go through life, and you want to live some of the dreams you know the, the music thing the music thing was always something we always wanted to experience and I never will forget after we won our first award you know it was just everything was great you know we won our first ACM first we won the ACM award then we won the CMA awards then we won Grammys and our, you know records were going platinum and we were just flying real high and um, and I'm going wow this is amazing but uh, about the second year of that, I w you know, we won our second CMA award in Nashville, and I was sitting by myself, and I'm going, you know, this is really great, but there's just still, there's just something kind of missing in my life. I'm not talking about the rest of the guys because everybody has their own walk, and I was just missing something, and and it wasn't very long after that that the original lineup in '92, June of '92, just imploded, and you probably remember yes. that. And my world just came apart, basically. And um, so I went for like a year and a half, you know, dealing with it in my own way as the other guys dealt with it. You know, we, we uh, worked hard to put that band together. But, you know, looking back on it, there was things I learned from that breakup that I would have never learned if it hadn't happened. Uh, 94, my aunt invited me to church in Midcalf County and I reluctantly went and I just at the end of the service I knew I had to go straighten some things out with the, the God and that's what I did and it just lifted a burden off my life and uh, since then I've you know basically been hey listen man I'm not perfect and the guys none, none of us are the guys and the band will tell you I'm not I will tell you uh, I'm far from perfect my wife wouldn't tell you that uh, but there was just 
there's nothing more fulfilling than having a relationship with Christ, and I, I, I do enjoy studying the Bible. Uh, when I'm out walking every day, I normally try to listen to a pastor, you know, teach, expound on the Word of God, and um, today I wasn't able to do it. I couldn't get couldn't get the sermon to download for some reason. I used to listen to music all the time, so basically whatever I was listening to that day was going to come out in the show. So now I'm just more peaceful during the show. <laughs> but uh, Psalm 33, that's just one of my favorite verses. Uh, Sing to the Lord a new song. Play skillfully with a, a loud noise, and the Lord knows I can do it with a loud noise. Yes, now whatever translation you want to check out, I think well, I, I think I read ten or eleven different. Ones yeah, just tried to, yeah. tried to figure out what, you yeah, know, exactly but, what it says. And that's the great part. You know, you mentioned that. I'm a Christian. Yes, and I, I like the part where you said, you know, and I'm not perfect. You know, that's, oh, that's no. the whole part oh, God, no. of being a Christian is yeah. we do make mistakes. Well, we a lot get of, to ask forgiveness. A lot of folks it, don't know this, and I haven't really told a lot of people this. I'm actually a licensed minister of the gospel. And that's just happened about a year ago. But I haven't told a whole lot of people because I haven't really wanted to go say, Greg. Will you marry us? Will you <laughs> preach my funeral? I'm going, uh, I'm not quite ready for that yet. But I, I'm, I was ordained through uh, Bikers for Christ in California. Well, licensed through them. And later in life, would, could I do something more into the ministry part through music? It could happen. I don't know. God's put me in these situations for a reason. And every lesson I've learned out of music, whether a band breakup or whatever, I, we've been out here in the trenches forever, and it's been a great experience. I've learned a lot, you know. So I am a Christian, yes, sir. Yeah, born well, again Christian. I'm glad to hear that. And Thank he's you. blessed you and given you yes, quite he has. I know the reason I'm here today, or even hanging with you, is because of him. Above. This is Alan here in WYRZ, and I'm sitting here talking to Fred Young, the drummer of the Kentucky Headhunters. How you doing, Al? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. Getting ready to play a show here in a little bit. Yeah, right downtown. This is yeah. pretty neat. Yeah. I like this. Nice place. Um, first question I'm going to lead into, you've got the most unique set of drums I've probably ever seen. What can you tell me about those drums? Okay. Uh, when we put the Headhunters together, we were playing strictly Delta Blues music. And uh, hold on just a second. And uh, I was looking for something to play that, like, they used on the Sonny Boy Williams King Biscuit Fly, uh, you know, show. So uh, I put that set together, and uh, it came from our high school, and uh, uh, one of the bass drums came from the high school on Tom Tom, and some junk shops and stuff. But that's what I put together for my set. So, so to play because we had that sound that I wanted for that and look and everything. So. That's, they've been with me since 86, and we've toured every year with them. They're pretty cool. Yeah, they're neat drums. How did you, out of, you know, you're back there playing the drums all night long, all night long. Oh, yeah. I mean, hard at, not saying everybody else didn't give it 100%. Right, yeah. But everybody takes a break, and we're chanting, go, Fred, go. Well, and you go through about an eight-minute drum slow. How did you drill the, draw the short straw there? Well, <laughs> when, when we grew up playing, all guys... Uh, did solos, you know, of course you had Iron Butterfly and Agata DeVita and, and uh, all the all the drummers in the bands were doing solos, you know, so you had to do that, you know, it was like so we always did it ever since I was kids, so 
we just kept doing it. And uh, that's pretty much all we know how to do is what we learned and how we do it, you know. That's well, pretty unique. You don't see it very often, very, very much, uh, in a, that type of locomotion solo. It's mostly, you know, guys playing beat, drum beats and stuff like that in these solos and stuff. But in the, in the time when we grew up, people, you know, coming off of the jazz thing and the, and the fusion and stuff like that. And it's just a different type of drumming back then, really. And that's kind of still what like we're still doing. How do, you, how do you do that and have enough energy to finish the show? Well, it's not, it's not the easiest thing in the world, especially if you get older, you know, but it's like a, a workout. That's my, I say it's my workout machine. <laughs> you know. I believe it. Um, I know that you like to farm and you've got a farm down yeah. in Kentucky when you're not on the road. What do you like about farming and what is the best part of farming for you? Okay. Uh, when I was a kid, I was one of these kids that they had to take the, tr the keys out of the tractors and stuff like that because they was afraid I was going to get killed on a tractor. You know, I've always had it in my blood to be on the farm and stuff and raised a restaurant at Hampshire Pigs and and uh, it's just a farm life. It's just and it and it, I grew up on a farm. I live on a farm. Our family farm and uh, it's a simple life. Like I read. The magazines I read is like from like the 40s and 50s, and and the books on farming and stuff, the their methods and stuff. Like, and I just it's like I live back in time, but I like the old, uh, I like the old ways of farming and the old, you know, like the people sitting on the front porch and stuff like yeah. that. The things that you don't see no more, not the corporate stuff farming, but I like the 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 family farm type farm when you had a few hogs and everybody used to have a few hogs and a milk cow and stuff like that and it's don't it's don't exist anymore you know they bring it back now some with these uh these hobby farm guys and stuff like that but i'm more i say i collect antique tractors and and farm equipment and stuff like that and i i just love the old old farming farming ways and the lifestyle it's a type of almost like a thing of the past now yeah, you know, that's back when everything was closed on Sunday, and it didn't matter whether you went to church or how your family was raised. Everybody had right. Sunday afternoon right. meal together. Right. Well, I think that's something that that you always see after your show is you guys are always out there signing autographs and selling T-shirt and taking time for for the fan. Which well, we enjoy getting to see them, meet these people, just like they get to come see us. I mean, cause I mean, like it's we're out here on this old bus, man. We're, we don't get to see nobody, you know. We're I like to see uh, some people and learn where their background is and what they're all about too, you know. I've got some friends, guy I went to school with out here tonight to see me play. He moved up here and, and worked his, but every time we come around, him and his family come to see us. Well, that's pretty neat. Well, Fred, thanks very much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Alan. I appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as Alan has been interviewing members of the Kentucky Headhunters. You've been listening to Sights and Sounds with Alan Kiger. Sponsored by Hawkeye Storage in Danville. Join us the first Saturday of every month at 4 p.m. on 98.9 FM and WYRZ.org. 
Hawkeye Self Storage in Danville has electricity hookups, 14-foot tall doors, and 60-foot drive lanes, private bays, interior and exterior lighting with 24-7 access gated entry. They also feature indoor RV and boat storage with three locations, 1303 East County Road 200 South in Danville, 7410 West US 36 in Danville, and 2238 West US Highway 36 in Danville. More information can be found by calling their phone number at 316 316- 745-2700 or by going to their website hawkeyestorageunits.com